Today's scriptures are found in Titus 1, 5 through 9. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. This is God's word. You may be seated. So we are jumping back into our, our short series in Titus, and uh, the, uh, the title of this is Building Your Life on the Lord, and, and this is really what uh, Titus's task is. Paul has left him on the island of Crete, and uh, to, to kind of help establish the church that is there, right? And so to help build our lives on the Lord. And we're going to learn several things from like looking into uh, his instructions to Titus, his encouragement to Titus, and, and ultimately then to us as we learn, as we grow, as we mature in the gospel and look more like Jesus. And so, uh, but one of his first tasks as he leaves him in Crete is to establish leaders in the church. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning is spiritual leadership in the church. And now I know when you hear maybe leadership, um, leadership, authority isn't having its best day in the, uh, you know, its best moment uh, in, in our cultural climate, I don't think, right? I don't know when you hear kind of those kind of words of leadership and authority, maybe you bristle a little bit at that. And that, that might be for good reason. Maybe you've had bad leaders in your life. Right? Maybe that's, you know, in a broader sense, political leaders, or it could be something closer to home. Like maybe you've had a bad teacher um, or a bad coach. Uh, I coached football for a while and I've been around coaches and some of them are good coaches and some of them are bad coaches. <laughs> and, uh, you know, those coaches that never encourage are just always screaming and yelling and, you know, um, in that kind of way. No one look forward to them. Maybe it's parents. Maybe you've had a bad parent um, leading you um, as, as a child in that, in that sort of way. Um, but the answer to bad leadership isn't just to get rid of leadership, right? Just because you've had a bad teacher doesn't mean we should just get rid of education. Um, just because, you know, a referee was bad doesn't mean we should just, you know, get rid of rules and referees and just, you know, let it be some barbaric brawl. Um, leave that to UFC or whatever it is, right? But even they have refs. So rules or people that are there to help guide and lead and give us leadership and authority in our lives, um, the answer to bad leadership is good leadership, not an absence of leadership. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. The kind of leaders that we should want in our church, that we should aspire to be in our church, that we should pray for in our church. Um, and maybe you're here this morning as a bit of a skeptic. Maybe this is already starting to sound like one of those sermons where you're like, hmm, we'll see. We'll see about all this like church leadership stuff. And maybe that's for good reason. Maybe you've been burned by, by church leaders even in the past, right? We could all recount stories. I mean, podcasts and newspaper, I mean, articles of bad church leaders who have led poorly and have um, maybe even abused people um, and, and used their positions of leadership 
uh, poorly. And so if that's you, I'm really glad you're here because I, I think today hopefully will uh, give us some hope and, and help uh, as we look to the scriptures to see what should good church leadership look like. And particularly, we're going to kind of look at um, elders in the sense. We'll, we'll, we'll narrow the funnel a little bit. But that's really my main point this morning is that God gives to his people, he gives leaders to his people so that under their care, they will flourish spiritually. Church should be a place where we're able to flourish um, spiritually. And good leadership allows for that. It creates that kind of environment. And so a couple points before we get into our text, just to help set the framework a little bit, because we're talking about leaders, right? Uh, in, in a body, an organization, we might even call it. And so usually when you think of that, you think of like an org chart, right? If you have a, a business, if you work at a place of employment, you kind of have an org chart, right? It's a person at the top, who you're subordinate to, maybe who's subordinate to you, all those sorts of things. So when we think about Foothill, who's at the top of the org chart? Okay, good, good. You guys are... There's a couple of murmurings there, right? Right. So the top of the org chart for Foothill and for every actual church is Jesus, right? He is our shepherd, right? So good, you got the answer right. So he, he's at the top of the org chart. Chris Lewis is a little further down the chain uh, uh, than that, right? and the rest of our elders. And he would, he would say the same if he were here, right? Um, he's going to send another video in. Hey, wait a minute. I heard what you were... Uh, no. So... We've killed the live stream, so we can't even watch this right now. So it's all, it's all good. But Jesus is, Jesus is the head of the church. Ephesians 5, Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. No pastor is your savior, only Jesus is uh, filling that position. Uh, Colossians, we just worked our way through Colossians. Colossians 1, 18, Christ is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body. The church, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. So Jesus is the top of our org chart. Uh, the church is like a body that gets its leadership, its nourishment from its head, Jesus Christ. And the church isn't a mere human organization because its head is divine. And so the church shouldn't act and be run like an organization, right? Pastors are shepherds, not CEOs, now, there are things that we can learn and good organizational leadership, all of that. There's a right place and time for that. But primarily, the job of the leaders of the church are to be shepherds. That's literally what the word pastor means. They would pasture the sheep. And so this is uh, what our, our uh, Jesus is at, at the top of this structure. And our structures and practices let Christ the head govern, lead, and nurture his church well. Jesus is the living head, the leader and the sustainer of the church, his body. Okay, and then underneath that, we'll, 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 we'll come back here in a second, but then there's all of us, right? So all the members of Christ's body, the Bible tells us, are priests and ministers. We all have a role as ministers. You saw my name up there and it said missions minister. That's not my, primarily my like uh, title of office, that's just my function uh, it's, it's more of a function of ministry. I'm not an elder here. I'm, I'm a minister here. We use those words different, right? So you'll notice anyone at Foothill that's called a pastor is an elder. Anyone who's not a pastor or an elder is a minister. So I'm the missions minister. Um, you know, Katie is our family's minister. Brian's our student's minister. 
And then we have Pastor Chris and we have uh, Pastor Ike and Pastor Stephen and, and Pastor John and, uh, and we have lay elders as well, right? But all of us are ministers. All of us are priests in that sense. First Peter chapter two, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people that you may declare the wonderful deeds of him who called you out of darkness and into marvelous light. Revelation 1, he loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. The New Testament knows nothing of a priesthood of clergy as it is, right? First Timothy, there's one God and there's one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. So you don't need a priest uh, to, to, to confess your sins to. Who are we to confess our sins to? One another. Right? The Bible says, we, because we're all priests, we can confess our sins so we can uphold, we can pray for one another. We can go directly to God. You don't need a priest as a mediator. You don't need a pastor as a mediator. You can pray to God directly. There's only three people on this planet that should call me father. And those are my biological children, right? Uh, living in Ireland, you know, there's a little, there's a lot of, you know, Roman Catholic kind of, you know, and oh, you're a pastor. Oh, father. And I'm like, no, 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 no. Nobody gets to call me that, but my kids. Right? Because we don't need a mediator. So we are all ministers. We are all priests. And then out of that, out of the congregation, God calls some members to help feed and lead the sheep as servants of Christ, as his people. So Jesus, the chief shepherd, and then all of us as ministers and priests. And then God calls some, not all, but some out of that to be under shepherds. Now, here's the thing. They're also sheep, Right? Over and over again, we're going to see uh, the Bible talk about elders as among, among the, the people. So we are also, pastors are shepherds or under shepherds under Christ, but they're also sheep. So there's a equality of God uh, before God of, of all of us as children, as heirs, as priests and ministers, but God calls some to serve as leaders. Um, so in Hebrews, remember your leaders who spoke to you the word of God, consider their outcome of their life and imitate their faith, obey your leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls as men who will have to give an account. So the congregation, all of us under Christ by his word and his spirit, use our authority to recognize and affirm leaders whom God calls. And then we Put our, we put people in positions of leadership and then voluntarily support that leadership by learning from their teachers, uh, teachings, following their initiatives in that sense. Okay, so that's kind of a, a broad framework of, uh, of that. Now let's jump into the text and we're gonna look at really three things. Three things. Why does God give us leaders? Uh, what kind of leaders or what type of leaders does he give us? And how does he give them to us? And we'll spend most of our time in that second section um, um, but let's jump in. Why does he give us leaders? Um, verse seven, or sorry, verse five. So Paul to Timothy, or to Titus, uh, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So uh, there's different types of leaders in the church. We're gonna narrow this down to look at elders um, in the church, which is a particular office, right? The, that uh, the Bible recognizes. We're talking about pastors, overseers, uh, elders, teachers um, that lead, lead his church in that way. But he says, why? I put you there that you might put what remained into order. 
Um, the word that's used here is actually would take us back to Genesis 1. Do you remember? Um, as God's created, there was, uh, the world was without form. Literally, that word there is chaos. The, the universe was chaotic. And God, in, as, a, as he creates, starts to separate light from darkness. He, says, he starts to separate land and the waters. He creates animals and beasts of every kind. He creates a man and a woman. He creates order from the chaos. Chaos isn't good. Order is what he puts. And, and even the, the mandate that he gives the man and the woman is to continue to cultivate the garden that he had put them in, to keep it in order. Um, Paul, when he's writing to the church in Corinthians, which was chaotic, to say the least, he's writing, and part of the reason he's writing is to put their worship or their gathering, their, their body, back into right order, a worshipful order, which is chapter 14. And he says, why? Because God is not a God of confusion, but a God of peace. The shalom, the presence of God brings peace. It brings an order. It's not chaotic. And he, he tells the Corinthians, he says, but all things should be done decently and in order. And he's speaking to them as a gathered church. Their church should be decent and in order. And so he gives Titus an instruction to establish elders to bring order to what was left undone, order to equip, to teach, to provide an environment where uh, the congregation can use their spiritual gifts, where they can serve, where they can worship God, where they uh, can receive the Lord's Supper together, where they can baptize. And a church without elders is an incomplete church. Literally, he says, put in order what remains. What remains is translated, what is lacking? A church without good elders. And notice it is elders. Over and over in the scripture, when we see elders, it's a plurality of elders. It's not just one elder, kind of, uh, you know, this autocratic one man getting to dictate everything. There's a plurality of elders that they submit to one another as they work together. And he says, and point them in each city. So that's not city elders. This is at that time, each city would have had one church, right? They were meeting in house churches. And so each church was to have elders. This is Titus's mission to shore up this insufficiency that is lacking or, or what remains to order. And the first way he establishes order in the church is by right leadership, um, to establish elders in those church. So this is why God gives us leaders. So secondly, then what type of leaders does God give us? Um, and we're going to see kind of four categories. We'll put them into four categories just to help us organize it a little bit. I, I would also, we don't have time today, but I would also refer you, uh, I would encourage you to read um, not just this section, but also 1 Timothy chapter 3, 1 Peter chapter 5. Uh, those are the other two places that we're going to see qualifications of elders or what types of elders the church should have. And really we get this composite um, picture uh, between these three passages. And this will contain a lot of them. There's a lot of similarities, overlap, worded differently, but the same kinds of things. So we're just going to work through this, but I'd encourage you, 1 Timothy 3, 1 Peter 5, and we'll see what kind of leaders does God give us. And the first one, the first category we're going to see is that they're generally qualified. Okay. So in verse six, if anyone is above reproach, and he's going to repeat this in verse seven as he, as he continues his list, this idea of above reproach is this kind of a catch-all phrase. This is the kind of person, a person that's without indictment, uh, without accusation, 
a man that's unchargeable. He's unpeachable in his character. Um, he's one who nothing can be brought against him. The word stands, uh, this word uh, uh, above approach, it kind of stands at the head of this list of qualifications that follows. And Paul says an elder is to be a man who's above reproach. His lifestyle is such that no one can legitimately accuse him of conduct which isn't befitting a mature believer or one who is a steward or manager of God, which is what elders are. And the qualifications that follow in this list in 1 Timothy and 1 Peter are going to give a lot of the details which are going to test that uh, blamelessness. Um, now, this doesn't mean that elders are perfect. It doesn't mean that there isn't room for improvement in their life in any one of the following areas because no one is perfect, right? There's none righteous, no, not one. Um, Psalm 143, uh, Philippians uh, 3, 10 to 14. Only, only God is perfect, but he does give under shepherds. And generally speaking, an elder is to be a model of Christian maturity and the qualities of these passages are marks of that maturity. Which should characterize all the qualified men that he is talking to. I will say this though. Note that these qualities um, are really connected to his relationship, the elder's relationship uh, in all of his relationships in life. Um, His relationship to God, his relationship to the scripture, his relationship to himself, to his family, others including outsiders of the church, and even to material things. So there is a generally qualified. The second category that we're going to see is that they're domestically qualified. Um, So here he's going to look at his marriage, if he's married, and his family. Now, notice uh, here he says, um, if he's above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. So I know this isn't a popular uh, opinion um, in today's kind of zeitgeist that we're in, but it has to be said, Paul is speaking about, when he's talking about the office of an elder, he's talking about men. Um, The indefinite pronoun here, he is obviously a husband of one wife. Here, the pronoun is masculine throughout the rest of the passage. It's not a neuter or a feminine um, pronoun that is used. And so elders um, are the only office in the church that are reserved for men. Now, that's not to say because men are better. It's not because they're more holier or any of these kind of things on this list. But God roots all of this in his creation order that we spoke of before, right? And it's an example of, it's meant to model our relationship to Jesus as the church. So we as elders are also sheep. We're also um, uh, under shepherds. We also are subordinate in in the way that uh, the rest of the church is. But the church is always characterized in the feminine. We are the bride of Christ. Christ is the husband. And we are to model that even within our marriages and within the church. And so Christ uh, roots us in, uh, in, in the creation order. We could, go, we could spend an entire sermon just on that alone. We don't have the time nor the capacity to do that this morning. So if you have any questions about that, ask an elder. Okay. And I'm not one of those. So um, no, I'm happy to talk about it. I guess I technically I am now an elder again, just not here uh, down at the beach. So I'll take it up with them. The, the question then is, okay, if he's the husband of one wife, does that mean he has to be married? What about single, single men? Can they be qualified as elders? Um, and he's not, uh, the language that's used here isn't requiring that they be married. 
If that were the case, Paul and Timothy weren't qualified. They were both single. Jesus wasn't qualified. Um, so if Jesus can't be an elder in your church, you've probably interpreted the passage wrong. Okay? Um, so uh, he's not saying they have to be married. Uh, and Paul will even talk about in Corinthians 7, right? The advantages of ministry while you're single. So single folks, men and women, lots of advantages that you have to being single in, in ministry. But... What he is, uh, this requirement obviously prohibits promiscuity and polygamy, um, but it gets to the very heart of fidelity. Is this man's heart, is he a one, literally the passage is, is he a one woman man? If he's married, uh, that man is required to have only one woman, his wife, in his life. If he's been blessed to, to have a wife, then he is singularly devoted to her. If he's yet to wed, then he's a man, uh, a single man whose eyes don't wander. He keeps him hand, his hands to himself. He doesn't give his heart out willy-nilly to every kind of woman passing by, right? He's a man who is faithful in word and thought and deed to his wife, even if he hasn't been married to that wife yet. That's the kind of man that we're talking about. The question that comes up then, well, what if he was previously married? Um, or, and what if he's remarried? What if his, former, if his wife died and he's been remarried? He's, can he be an elder? Or what if he was divorced before he became a Christian? And, you know, we're going to see what the Christians are like. These aren't people that are known for their holiness. You know, what, what if one of these persons, you know, now, now that they've met Christ and has been changed, can they be married? And... Um, if it's taken in its absolute sense of married only once, then it stands, then that qualification would stand alone from the rest of these as the only absolute qualification listed. Because every other qualification on here, a man can grow in. There's room for improvement. He can, he can be less arrogant. He can be less angry. He can be more self-controlled, right? He can grow in all of these. They're relative in that kind of sense. But this would be the only one that you can't be more married or less married in that sense. So the point of this phrase is probably not how often one can be married or precisely what constitutes a legitimate marriage. That's assumed that this is a legitimate marriage in the text, but rather how does he conduct himself in his marriage? So these are getting to the heart of the character of, of the man. If he's married, is he faithful to his wife? Or does he have wandering eyes? Does he have a divided heart, right? Because faithfulness to his bride is... Uh, what is a characteristic of Jesus, who's faithful to us over and over. And so the leaders of his church should be represented of that. The second part of domestic qualifications are his children, right? Um, his children are believers, not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Now, this word, we're not, I'm going to try not to get into technical Greek stuff a lot tonight, uh, this morning, but there are a few things here. So this word believing can also be faithful um, so he has faithful children. So the question really is, is a couple things. Firstly, is the meaning believing that they're Christians? They have to be, his children have to be Christians or do they have to be faithful? And then secondly, what's the length of time that elders are held accountable for their kids in that way? So if we look at this word believing, it's, it's from uh, the Greek word pista, which has, has a, a passive meaning and an active meaning, right? A passive meaning is is trustworthy, it's dependable, um, faithful, or there's an active meaning of they are believing, they are actively trusting. So is Paul saying you have to have Christians who believe 
or are faithful. And I think two things suggest the latter, that they have to be faithful. First, he goes on to, to say they have to be believing or faithful as opposed to um, living lives that are debaucherous and insubordination. So you can be a believer and have a season of insubordination in your life, can't you? It doesn't mean we've lost our, our salvation in that sense if we're generally saved. So it'd be odd that he would do that. And, and Timothy says the same thing. His children must be faithful, keeping them under control or, or subordinate in that sense. So I think this is arguing for the meaning of faithful by the clause that immediately follows that. His children must not be charged as wild or self-indulgent or rebellious against their parental authority. Because a man's ability to govern his home well, um, Paul asked the question, how can a man govern the church if he can't govern his own home? Does he have leadership that his own children um, are respectful to in that sense? And then the secondly, second thing is while parents can keep their kids under control through loving discipline and prayerfully seek to bring them to Christ, um, becoming believers, them actually trusting in Christ is something that parents can't force upon their children. Only the spirit of God can make them regenerate. And so while parents have the greatest influence and impact in leading their children to Christ, they can't force their children to believe. And so I think the, the translation is better that they have faithful kids. They're faithful to their father's leadership. They're faithful to his uh, authority over their life uh, in that sense. Which brings the second question, well, how, for how long? How long is a, are elders responsible for that? And I think having children um, in, in light here is, is in relation to the elder's household. So I think it really is while they're still a part of his household while they're under his roof. They're, they're, they're still children under his authority. We're not talking about adult kids that have gone out to make their own decisions uh, in, in adulthood. The requirement isn't on the children themselves, but on the father as a prospective elder, right? The question is simple. Does he handle his family well? So this isn't to put undue pressure on pastor's kids um, that are here. Hey, behave in church. Or you're going to, I'm going to lose my job or, you know, it's, that's not what, that's not, this isn't that. This is, this is, hey, they're not perfect. Um, kids will be kids, but are they generally under the authority of their parents or have they thrown off parental authority and living wild, rebellious um, lives in that sense? And so, so they have to be generally kind of qualified domestically. What does their home life look like? Um, and, uh, you know, the question, I guess, for, for women in here, if your husband would meet these qualifications, would your home be better? Would your marriage be better? Would your uh, kids um, ha have parents that are better in that sense? And the obvious answer to that is, of course, yes, um, which is why we should be aspiring to this. The third category we see then is that he's personally qualified. And again, these are all, all of these things are pointing to uh, the leader's character, the, the, the elder's character. Notice he, verse seven, for an overseer, and just a quick textual point there, notice he started with elder, now he's using the word overseer. Um, they'll also use the term pastor or shepherd um, between the, these three different passages. Those are all interchangeable uh, titles for the same office. So we don't have elders, overseers, and pastors. We have overseer, pastor, elders. They're all, those are all the same words that are used for the one office in that way. So 
He says an overseer, an elder, a shepherd pastor um, must not be. So we're going to have, uh, it says must be above reproach. He's reiterating what we looked at already. And then he's going to go on and give us um, this list. And we're going to find uh, some negatives, some nots, that he must not be, and things that he must be. So positive. So first of all, ne- the negatives. He must not be arrogant. Now, again, the, the word here in, in, in Greek that's used is literally the words that we get kind of self and hedonism from. It is a self-hedonistic person. That's what this, where, where we get arrogant from. He enjoys uh, himself. He's self-pleasing, self-willed. He's obstinate toward others' opinions, and thus he's arrogant. He, he refuses to listen to others. And clearly the idea of the word here is self-centeredness. And I will just say, as we look at these like negatives and positives, you can kind of categorize them, all the negatives as a self-centered person and all the positives as a God and other-centered person. Um, and Paul says, self-centered people shouldn't lead the church. Those that are God and others uh, oriented should be the ones who are leading, right? We're going to see this, that theme throughout this. And so this is, they shouldn't be arrogant. This kind of person can neutralize the unity and the effectiveness of the plurality, plurality of elders, right? You know these kind of people, right? They always have to have their own way. Um, they, they really uh, try to, to ward off others' kind of opinions and direction, whether it's in matters of family matters or church matters, business matters, this person's rarely willing to give up their own desires for the sake of the group. And when they do kind of finally succumb, they do it very begrudgingly and kind of let you know they're not happy about it. In short, a self-willed man builds the world around himself. He's self-centered. And Paul says those people should not be in positions of leadership. Second not is they should not be quick-tempered. Right? This is a person who's prone to anger. They're inclined to, to anger. The issue here is not the presence of anger because sometimes there's a holy, righteous anger. There's things to be angry about, Ephesians 4. But rather, this is describing the man who has a short fuse. Right? There's a temperament that's also related to being self-willed. When anger explodes into uncontrollable behavior, you know the kind of person, right? A bit of a ticking time bomb, walking around. You never know when they're going to kind of just be angry about something. Their disposition is just grumpy and kind of generally angry. And Paul says, these are not people that should be leading the church. Third, then they should not be a drunkard. And that seems like that, seems like that would be a, a no-brainer, right? Um, but it's important because this is, was an issue then and it could be an issue now. Um, those that are leading the church shouldn't be addicted to things that can influence them. Um, outside influences. So literally the language here is uh, one who sits a long time with their wine. Um, someone who's associated to given to drink or a heavy drinker refers to the person who becomes intoxicated um, because of their addiction rather than being under the control of the Holy Spirit. They're under control of their addictions. Is this man free from addictions is the, is the question that's here. And again, this isn't a uh, a, a complete ban or abstinence. Paul will actually tell Timothy, hey, you should drink a little wine for your stomach, for your health. Um, but is this man's judgment impaired? Is he lacking self-control? Is he lacking um, discipline as we'll, we'll go on to see? Because Paul says, whatever we do, whether we eat or drink, whatever it is we should do for the glory of God. So this is a person that is free from addictions 
um, particularly with uh, alcohol in this, in this case, although I think it could go on to a lot of other things that we could be uh, addicted to. Uh, the next thing they shouldn't be is violent. Um, literally, this is a, a fighter or a striker, right? It refers to someone who's quick with their fist to strike an opponent. They're lashing out. You can add these together, right? That person who's really angry, who's self-centered, uh, lashes out maybe because of inebriation, whatever it is, um, striking out. It looks at the anger, which is out of control. This is the kind of person that's always looking for a fight, right? And nowadays, this person might not be as physical, but it's the same disposition of heart. Always looking for an argument. Always looking for a fight. Whether it's in person or on Twitter or where, right, wherever it is. Like this person is, is argumentative. Always looking for a fight. Too many pastors spend their time being quick-tempered, um, looking for fights online and in lots of different ways. And, and Paul says that shouldn't be the demeanor of a leader. Next is greedy or greedy for gain, personal gain. Now, we're going to see reference later on in this letter to Titus. There's false teachers, uh, particularly from a Jewish background, and they're teaching for the purpose of ill-gotten gain, for, per, uh, for, for material gain. And Paul says that shouldn't be the kind of people who are leading the church. Their motivation isn't one of personal gain. Um, it's referring to engaging in any kind of business that would discredit the name of Christ or having false priorities that put their personal business ahead of the kingdom of God. We are literally, those that are called to lead the church are called to steward well. Paul will uh, refer to himself as a, a servant, a steward of God. Um, Peter will talk about uh, elders not lording their authority over. And this is what greedy, greedy people do. They use their position uh, to lord over people for their own personal gain. Paul teaches us that elders, as examples for others, would be free from the love of money. Now, making money is an evil. Having money is an evil. But it's the love of those things that gets you into trouble. A divided heart, right? It's the root of all, e all kinds of evil, Paul will tell Timothy. Men who love money are, are more concerned about laying up treasures on earth than they are about laying up heavenly treasures. You think about examples today, right? How much damage to the name and reputation of Jesus and his church have so-called prosperity gospel preachers done? If you'll just send in this kind of money, if you'll just do this, and then they fly off in private jets and drive around in, you know, exotic cars, all under the guise of leading God's people. I think Paul would have strong um, words. That's probably righteous anger that would be allowed. Now, vocational pastors, right? So Foothill has vocational pastors, those that we actually pay as their job uh, to set aside their time to, to study, uh, to pray. Um, your elders pray for you every week um, by name, um, different prayer requests, people that are sick, uh, you know, different kind of financial woes, whatever it is, um, working through that pastoral care list, praying for you, um, teaching the Bible well. And then we, we also have, and all of our, our, our elders do that, but we also have lay elders, right, who work outside a church. They have a different vocation, um, but still give their time um, to prayer, um, to handling the word, of safeguarding um, the church in that kind of way. And so it's not wrong for pastors to earn their living, um, Paul says they deserve that if that's what they're doing. They deserve, those who handle the word um, deserve double honor in that sense. 
But he's, he's saying these people, that shouldn't be their motivation. They're not greedy. Paul was willing to be bivocational if he needed to. He was willing to, to work outside the church if that's what it meant um, for him to do ministry. And it revealed it wasn't for his personal gain, but that's why he continues to call himself a servant, a steward. And that should be the heart disposition of our, our, our leaders. Now he's going to turn to uh, the positives. So he goes through the list of negatives in verse 8. But, and so now in contrast to, you got this composite picture of a, of a man who's self-centered, right? His world is around him. It's, it's, he's greedy. It's, it's his own gain. He's angry. He can lash out in violence. He's prone to addiction. Um, he's quick-tempered. Uh, an angry disposition. He said it shouldn't be that. But instead, in contrast, the first thing we get is hospitable. Literally, this word means loving strangers. And in the Greek, it's the exact opposite word that we have for xenophobic. We, those xenos and all of that comes from the Greek. So it's the opposite of xenophobic. Someone who's afraid or, or wants to ward off others. People not like them. They want their own kind of world, right? And, and he says, no, 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 no. Elders are hospitable. They literally love strangers. <laughs> they will use their life and their home to welcome people in. Um, it doesn't matter their background. It doesn't matter their race. It doesn't matter what, whatever it is, they're hospitable. This is a quality of Christian behavior that's commanded to all of us multiple times in scripture. Romans 12, Hebrews 13, 1 Timothy 3, here, 1 Peter 4. Uh, it, it, we're to pursue hospitality. And it's not just a Christian responsibility but it's, a, it's an act of Christian love. It's literally how we love other people. And the elder is one who willingly opens his home, opens up his life to others, to the needy, whether they're members of the body of Christ or outsiders. Hospitality is, is really geared toward outsiders, those still outside of the community of faith. And they're hospitable to those people. They demonstrate open, warm lives of love for others like Christ. Are our leaders our pastors characterized in that way. How, I mean, I can think of other pastors, not in our church, but like they spend their time arguing and being combative, mostly to people outside the church. I'm like, why would anyone want to listen to anything you have to say? When, when we're called to actually be hospitable to those people, to extend love and warmth of Christ to them so that they can hear the truth. They can bow their knee to Christ. And if the gospel is offensive, that's fine. But we aren't offensive. We're not trying to be offensive. We're trying to be hospitable. They demonstrate the love of Christ in their hospitality. The next thing that we see that they are is that they are lover of good. What a great category. They just love things that are good. They don't have like little secret compartments of sin they like to dabble in. No, they love what is good, what is right. They're devoted to what is good and beneficial, whether that's in people, in their deeds, or in things. The motivation and, and means for desiring good, loving good, comes from their time in the scripture, from the ministry of the spirit, in their spiritual growth. They love things that are good. They meditate on those things as we're all commanded to do. Now, the next word that we see here is, is uh, in, in ESV is translated self-controlled. Um, it's, a lot of other uh, translations will, will have sensible or sober-minded. I think that probably gets to the meaning out more here. We're going to see discipline, which is more self-control. So it's sensible. It's, it's someone, an elder is someone who's of sound mind. They're thoughtful. They're sober-minded. 
Their soundness of mind um, and thinking comes from knowing what is right, living in light of the word of God, being controlled by the spirit, and that sensibility affects their values, their attitudes, their pursuits. It brings self-control through the spirit, and it brings wisdom um, that they can uh, oversee and govern well um, the body of Christ. They're wise. They're sensible. They're of sound mind. And then the next two categories we have together are kind of rooted together. Um, We get them in two different words, but it's upright and holy, right? Upright is the sense of justice or or righteousness. It's it's doing what is right or just, especially of behavior that corresponds to God's standards of what is right in all their dealings of life, but especially with people, right? So this is going to deal with personal um, uprightness. They must be one whose conduct conforms to the righteous directives of God's truth. They're just and honest men in their life and dealings, um, whether that be in their business dealings, personal finance, and dealings with people. They are upright. They are just. They are honest um, men. And then holy. Um, And again, these these two words kind of go together, upright and holy. They're devout. They're They're pleasing to God. It means they're unpolluted. um, And 1 Timothy 2 um, is probably the best demonstration of this, right? Paul says they're lifting up holy hands without anger or dispute. Without anger and dispute, right? That was the, the negative list of categories. These are men who are lifting up holy hands without those things. That's the modifier for holy hands. They're hands that haven't been polluted by anger and disputation. And when used of the believer, this word seems to refer to our kind of progressive personal holiness, our sanctification um, that the spirit does in our life through our intimate fellowship with God. It's, It's godliness, right? It's right relations and intimacy with God. And so are our elders those people? Are they holy? Are they upright? Are they just and righteous? Are they growing in their personal holiness, Right? We say that's our our mission here is that we would all grow into the likeness of Jesus as we're rooted in the gospel and our leaders should be leading by example in that. And then the last uh, of this section is disciplined. So this is, uh, the meaning of this is it's strong, it's powerful, but it's also a master of those things. So it's someone who's self-controlled. They've exercised mastery over one's self and power. And it refers to the strength needed to hold passions in restraint, right? Um, And it's also one of the qualities of the fruit of the spirit. Love, peace, joy, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. In essence, then, self-control is really a self-life under the control of the Holy Spirit. So do you see the difference in those negatives and positive lists? One is a very self-centered person, um, lashing out in anger. Um, They only see their own opinion, they're volatile, um, can be given to addictions. They're just not a, a person that's under their own self-control, never mind the control of the Holy Spirit, as opposed to leaders who are just, who are upright, who are holy, um, whose families are representative of the peace and shalom um, that God brings to his people. They love good. That's the contrast that we have here. And uh, again, this isn't a a full and complete list. You can go to those two other um, sections as well. But you get the idea of a godly godly man, 
who's godly in all of his dealings in life. He's personally qualified. Then the, the section, finally, he's doctrinally qualified. Verse nine, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he might be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So what does it mean by hold firm? It's to study, it's to know, it's to live by the Bible as God's faithful message to his people and to be able to defend it against the attacks that have come and will certainly come again. And what the elder is to cling to is described in a twofold way. He describes it as the trustworthy word and as it's been taught. So trustworthy, it's, the word is reliable. Um, it's faithful. And as taught is this reference to this apostolic tradition, right? So there's false teachers already coming in. They're teaching this. Some Jewish myths are in there, their own kind of. And Paul's like, make sure that the, the men who are leading are holding fast to the word as it was taught, this apostolic tradition that has been passed down, the actual gospel, not a false gospel. We now have the completed canon, right? So Timothy didn't have this book yet um, as it was written. We now have the completed canon. This is the word that we hold fast to. And so this is what leaders of the church are called to be as it's taught. The message is to be faithful. It's to be reliable. It's in accordance with the scripture. Elders must be men of the book as inspired and errant infallible word of God. They're not teaching popular opinion on a particular kind of culture or age or some silly pseudo gospel motivational message dressed up with kind of Christianese language, but they're teaching the Bible, not worldly wisdom. This is why Paul will tell his young pastors, Titus and Timothy, to preach the word. That's what they're to, to teach because it's our source of God's wisdom. It's our source of how he's revealed himself to us, of how we're to be, of how we're to worship him. It's how we know what a life pleasing to God looks like. And notice then they're able then to be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. This idea of sound doctrine um, is literally um, can be translated as healthy, as like healthy teaching. It's used the physical health in Luke chapter five, but it's used over and over again in the pastoral um, passages of sound doctrine or, or healthy teaching. And I would say that falls into three categories. One, first category is dangerous or false teaching as we'll see even in this letter. It's inaccurate, it's heretical teaching, it poisons, it leads us astray from Christ, right? It's, it's, it's not the gospel. Second category then might not be false, but it isn't helpful, right? It's not healthy teaching. It's more like fluffy cotton candy. It tastes good. You get a, a sugar hit, but it's not a life that's going to lead to health and, and sustain, sustainability of good health. And then the third category is teaching that builds, it edifies, it strengthens because it's true, because it's what the Bible actually teaches. This is the sound doctrine that Paul is referring to. And like healthy food, sometimes it's not always what we want or the most tasteful, but it is what we always need. And elders deliver that to us. And then notice they're also able to rebuke false teaching, really to, to bring into light or expose, to convince or convict or reprove those who are contradicting the gospel, right? He has to be able to refute them by exposing errors, trying to convince them they're wrong by defending the Bible with the word of God. Today, truth is almost completely lost, it feels like, isn't it? No one asks whether a belief is true anymore. It's just if it's meaningful to them. The idea of an absolute truth outside of ourselves is completely eroded. 
we've kind of given into this absurd notion that not only does everyone have a right to their own opinion, but everybody's opinion is right. I think that's starting to collapse into itself, though, as even secular folks are making absolute truth claims now. So absolute truth is coming back. It's just not actually true. <laughs> John Calvin is often quoted saying a pastor, an elder needs two voices, one for gathering the sheep and the other for driving away wolves and thieves. I think that's true. The function of an elder is to feed and to lead. And then thirdly, and we'll end this quickly, but how does God give them to us then? Where are these people to come from? And I would say, we'll see in the text, by the gospel, through his spirit, from among them, from among them. We'll start there. Multiple times in Acts, as, as, as uh, the early church is starting, we see elders and leaders of the church, deacons, other leaders are from among them. Um, they're, not, they're not shipping in, you know, we're not going on to like jobs.com and looking for qualified people to come in. Like it's from among, it's from among the people, right? Um, but here's the thing though, what are the Cretans like? The Cretans, Paul's going to even say here, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own said, Cretans are always liars, evil, lazy, lazy gluttons. And he's, and he's like, and that's true. And so if, if these type of people are to come from these kind of people that are evil and lazy and how, how, how then are they going to become people who are qualified to lead men who are qualified? Well, even in Titus three. We'll come to this in a few, a few weeks. What does he say? Titus 3, 3. For we ourselves, now Paul's talking about himself, Titus. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our day in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. That's what he says. That's what the Christians are like. But hey, we were like that too. That's what we were all like. We all had aspects of that. But... When the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. That's the gospel. Where are they going to come from? They're going to come from among themselves because they're people that are going to be changed by the gospel. They're being changed by the gospel. They once were lazy, evil beasts, gluttons, and now they're not anymore. Why? Because the mercy and goodness of the loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, and it changed them by the washing and regeneration, renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Elders will come from among them, men changed by the gospel, men who have encountered the living Christ and he's changed their hearts. There's now new patterns of living, rejecting who they once were, now being made alive and new in Christ, literally coming from darkness into light, from death to life. And as their life is being regenerated, the, the, the fruit of the spirit is being produced in their life. These now are the men who are to lead. Elders come from among them. Men changed by the gospel. And like we said at the beginning, whilst the office of elder is, is for men, all of us, men, women, married, single, all of these characteristics are what we should aspire to be. These aren't only elders should be this way. Paul's just making sure the elders are that way, but we should all aspire to be like this. This should be our character, more like Christ, less like our old selves, because the goodness and mercy and loving kindness of God has appeared in our life. 
not because of our own works of righteousness, but because of his own mercy. His spirit has washed us, has, has made us regenerate. We're going to celebrate that in a moment with the Lord's Supper. What good news. Paul says aspiring to this is a noble task. It's noble. Hebrews will remind us, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God, consider the outcome of their ways and imitate their faith. So elders should lead by example. We should all be imitating their faith as they imitate Christ. He says, obey or literally have confidence in your leaders and submit to them for they're keeping watch over their souls as those who will have to give account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning for that would be of no advantage to you. And then he says, pray for us. You should pray for our elders. They should be able to lead with joy because there's no benefit to us if it's begrudging or if it's, uh, it doesn't mean that they're, they're, you know, perfect, but they are to be held in high esteem as servants, as stewards of what God has done. May this be true of Foothill Church. May it be true of Calvary Baptist in Huntington. May it be true of the other churches in, in our cities and, and around the world. The church probably hasn't been known for its good leadership as of late. That doesn't mean that it's not there. It doesn't mean that uh, they're perfect. But I can tell you this is working alongside um, the elders here as, as one who isn't, isn't one um, here. Um, man, they do love Jesus and they do love you. They pray for you and uh, they lose sleep. Um, over you. And there's hard things they have to deal with and bear um, loads. It's not easy work, um, but it is joyful work um, because it's a work that they do in serving the Lord. And so let's pray for them and let's aspire to be them like them as, as, as they are in Christ. And may we be those people in our homes. May we be mothers and fathers um, and other leaders in our church as we serve, as we are all ministers um, of the gospel in that sense. Um, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness that you don't just leave us um, as lost sheep. Uh, you give us uh, your word, you give us your spirit, and you give us um, leaders, you give us elders uh, to encourage us, to equip us for the work of ministry. Um, that create an environment where we can bear one another's burdens, where we can love and serve one another, where we can confess sins to one another, where we can uh, grow in the likeness of Jesus. And so, Father, we pray for um, our elders this morning, um, that you would give them lightness and joy in their work, um, that you would uh, keep them holy, um, Father, that you would uh, keep them looking to you, the author and finish of our faith. And Father, we pray that... Um, as they do their work, we would be a blessing to them as they are a blessing to us as they keep us focused on Jesus. And we ask this in your name. Amen.